Welcome to the Dallas Film Podcast, the official podcast of the Dallas Film Commission. Throughout this podcast series, we'll take you behind the scenes, peeling back the curtain on the magic of filmmaking. We'll explore the creative process, delve into the art of storytelling, and celebrate the talented individuals who bring these visions to life. Roll sound. Sound speed. Roll camera. Camera speed. And action. I'm Derek Compere. I'm the chair of the Film and Media Arts Program at SMU. So thank you for coming out uh, to our event uh, this morning. I apologize for how hard it was to find. I was just texting with somebody who couldn't find it a little bit. So I'm really uh, glad uh, that you're all here for this event. And uh, I want to thank Tony and the Dallas Film Commission for organizing this. And uh, Ryan Reed, in particular, for helping set up this event for us. And uh, all the staff at the Meadow School of the Arts who helped set it up. And uh, welcome to Roger and James. Glad to have you here. Uh, the nice thing about doing this is that there's really not much introduction required here. But I do uh, thank you, Derek, for the intro. But I do also want to say thank you to, where'd Andrew go? Oh, there he is. There he is. I mean, everybody keeps thanking me. But really, thank Andrew. He's the one who has put all the work together to, to, make, this, to make this happen. So um, I think I'm, I'll start out with a few questions, and then obviously we're going to easily get questions from the audience. So then we'll just kind of uh, you know open the discussion and kind of go from there. But I obviously everyone is super familiar with uh, with your work and all the accolades and everything else. But I think something that people don't know about is how how much you guys are really a team in everything, and what is really teamwork to put you know everything together. And, and so if you could just tell us a little bit about you know James and Roger, what it's like really as you guys as a team making this happen and not solely Roger even though you're the name that you know is getting getting the awards and things like that that's what I think I would like to start with <laughs> carry on <laughs> she's the power I, it's you know filmmaking's tough and so it's so much easier if you have a partner with you and when we go into prep we work together and I know what he's thinking lighting wise and uh, shot wise so he can be focusing on the things that he wants to focus on and then I can take those meetings and I deal with the visual effects a lot because oftentimes visual effects wants to shoot something against a blue screen but Roger does not and because I'm fairly technical I can talk to them about what is Very it that technical. you're... <laughs> well thank you. <laughs> I can um, talk to them about what it is that they're trying to do and then offer alternatives and come up with something that everybody's happy with. And I also deal with production and why we need certain pieces of equipment and with the crew guys, what they need and make sure they're happy. And then when we're on set, it just means that Roger can be at the camera focusing on the scene today while I'm thinking about the scenes coming up or I'm also with the dit watching the monitor to make sh sh kind of like another set of eyes for Roger. And then afterwards, I I'm also doing, oh yeah, the workflow and going to the lab and seeing it every day and making sure that we know what we're protecting for because if we're gonna do, for instance, IMAX, we, we need to protect a little wider and things like that. Things like that. And then afterwards, I, we follow it all the way through to the DI. So I'm keeping track with the visual effects. Are all these effects done? Are they going back? You know, we're still working on them, so we don't have to worry about them. Um, that kind of thing. 
with that? Yeah, I mean, the thing is, we, we, we met on a film. Uh, James was doing script and I, uh, and I was shooting, obviously. And um, we got together after that. And we just have the same sort of approach to our work and the love of filmmaking, that kind of lifestyle. So um, as things progressed, James started working with me. She knew most of the crew that I... C I had sort of attracted a crew when I started working in America. And James knew most of them longer than I did because she's from New York and she worked in a lab. So it, it just uh, evolved, didn't it? And it became... As, as really, I suppose, as the industry... Uh, the technology of cameras and everything got more complicated, strangely, with digital in particular. You know, it was more important to that we work together, didn't it? But I do have to say that we are the most boring couple ever, especially when we're shooting, because we'll go home and we'll say, okay, we're going to be personal now, we're not going to talk about work. But didn't you think that close-up could have been a little bit more to the right? I, I mean, we are so boring. Yeah, yeah, it's true. <laughs> You'll find it. But I, I think the important message is that on-set romances do work. Is is what you're trying to get across, right? Well, we, well. we didn't we didn't really date until after yeah. we'd met. So. Yeah, because yeah. it, it works if it's not actually on the set. Of, of I mean, course. because in the beginning, if you've ever worked a set where some two people met and they were going out and then they broke up during the production, it's pretty bad. <laughs> not good. So when you're first starting out, no. <laughs> or wait till after. Right, wait till after, wait till after. Well, we obviously, you know, we're at, uh, we're at uh, SMU Film School, and uh, so we have a lot of students, and so I think an appropriate question would be kind of, how, how do they get from where they're at now to where they want to be? You know, not necessarily, you know, where you are. Not everybody's going to be, you know, Oscar winners and, you know, making, you know, such spectacular films. Sometimes people are just happy to have a career in the industry. So maybe you know, just a little bit of something about how to sustain a career, really. Well, I was just as, I was just happy when I started shooting documentaries. I never thought I'd get any, any, I didn't think my world would change other than that. That's what I kind of thought I'd do. I didn't even thought I'd do that as a kid because I loved movies since I was very young. Um, I remember... My dad had a, a nine mil projector, and in these days, this is a while ago, you could you could rent cartoons that are on nine mil millimeter film reels, and you could rent them from the local post office. And Dad would show this in the sort of attic of our little house, and it was a treat to watch. You know, it would be Mickey Mouse or, or Felix the Cat cartoons. You know, from the fifties, it was great. Uh, so I've always loved movies, but I, you never, I never connected it with a, my life, you know, a way of earning a living, let alone a lifestyle. It, it, um, it was just a lot of luck, really. I, I think it's also figuring out what it is that you really love, because the business is tough, so you better love what you're doing. Um, and when you're starting out, actually start doing it, which could be that people that you know from film school are doing some spec film or something like that. And do it, do it for free and practice and get good at it. And then keep, don't 
buy into, can I say bullshit? <laughs> you know, I think this is a safe space enough okay. to say bullshit. Can you we? know, th that, that sometimes the film business brings, which is hierarchical and, oh, you know, I'm not good enough I'm, unless I'm at this level. Don't let go of that and remember why you're doing it because you care about it. And, um, you know, don't give up, I think. Yeah, I think that's the thing. I mean, but it also so much about the lifestyle of uh, of working in the industry. Sometimes you need to take the opportunities when they come along, even though they might not seem like the I don't know the greatest chance or something, or they might disrupt your kind of personal life. I mean, I went off shooting documentaries for months at a time, once like nine months, ten months uh, away. You know, it's not it's not easy on your personal life, but that's the like if your commitment to 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 what you feel is you. If you found your place, which I had found, which was with a camera, you know, then I was willing to put everything I had into that. But that didn't happen until I went to film school, and I was very lucky to go to film school. I put off going to work. You know, I was from. I was from a small town, and my dad was a builder. Um, he thought I would, you know, work in the building trade, and I did summers. But I never, I, I never was never happy. I didn't want to stay there. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was a bit of a mess, and so I went to art college, and then I just gradually discovered that I was into visuals. I was into observing things and expressing myself with images. And, you know, I wanted, thought I'd be a painter and whatever. And then I discovered I liked taking photographs. And then a friend of mine at art college said, oh, the National Film School's opening in the UK. And I thought, oh, well, that's nice. That'll be another <laughs> way I can put off working for a while. <laughs> so I went, you know, so I wasn't, I wasn't, I was like 25 before I touched a camera. I mean, a film camera. You know, so there's a lot of chance and a lot of, just a lot of that time kind of lost, really, kind of figuring out what do I want to do with my life? What, what actually excites me and what gives me satisfaction? And, you know, so it's, it can be hard, but you have to stick at it. I, th I think that's a good message. A lot of it isn't necessarily, this is what I have to do right now. This is step A, step B, step C, mm -hmm. but get some life experience. Yeah. You know, what are your life experiences that can then inform your art and what you want it and what you want to do and how that, how that progresses? I think also another good thing that I used to do all the time is watch movies and try and figure out why something I responded to something. And then I would watch them with the, the sound off to understand editing, to understand without the dialogue, you know, w what was propelling the story. I, I think that helps a lot. Well, I know there's a lot of questions, so I'm not going to talk a lot up here today. So we'll, uh, let's just start. I, there was a lot of hands right away. So questions, who has questions? All those hands a minute ago, and now, okay, over here. So, when you first look at a script, what is your first process in creating like a shot list? Like, how do you envision it? How do you go about completing that vision for an entire script? Well, the first thing to do, if you relate to the script, the first thing is talk to the director, and not not kind of like set on some kind of look or some plan. You know, you want to leave your mind open till you 
till you understand what the director's sort of take is on that script. You know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then with the director, you're going through and figuring out what it is that he wants and suggesting the shots and saying, well, what if we shoot, shoot it this way? So it's not, if you came in with a script full of shot list, I don't think the director would be very happy. <laughs> No, it's not. But but also, I mean, I I, I always find it important um, if I've been approached about a project and I, and I don't know the director, I kind of think it's important to understand where the director's coming from before actually taking the job. I've made mistakes where I've taken jobs and it hasn't worked with a director. You know, you have to be on the same page. You have to feel that you've got the same approach and the same of kind of same love of the project, really. And also, um, there are conversations with the production designer because that's going to affect where yeah, the movie is going. Yeah, everybody as it goes along. Yeah. I mean, I don't think you settle on a shot until you've got the actor in front of you and they've worked out the scene. I mean, you know, you can storyboard all you want, like with Joel and Ethan. Just I think just about every film that I worked on with them is storyboarding in pre-production. But when you get on the set, you can still rip it up if somebody's got a different idea. Strangely, with them, it's very seldom that anybody has another idea that's like on the storyboard. But it does happen, you know. Well, storyboards are a really great tool in in prep because it really makes you look at the scene and say what's important in the scene and. It's the fact that she got soup or something, so we definitely need a shot of the soup or some, or something like yeah, that. Yeah, that's a good. Uh, yeah. <laughs> all right, all right, all right, all right. <laughs> no, I think that's it's important with storyboards because I, I I'm not somebody that I don't like going on a shoot and having multiple cameras and covering the scene and leaving it to the editor. I mean, I always believe in well, Andre Tarkovsky or somebody would say the shot is the shot. There's the right shot or the right shot in your mind for that moment. And there's no reason to shoot anything else because that is the shot. Uh, so that's where I come from. But a lot of directors don't, and I can't, I can't work that way. I mean, there's a certain director who I've had no, numerous <laughs> meetings with over the years and socially and uh, uh, over projects. There's no way I could work with that director because he loves multiple cameras and a different way of working. And I, although I'm just a cameraman, I have a way that I, I feel comfortable working, you know. And I think that's really fascinating, uh, the whole coverage thing. Like, so much, you know, in making films nowadays, it's constantly, you're constantly beat over the head of get the coverage, get the coverage, get the coverage kind of thing. And so I know it's going to take more questions for the audience, but I think this is Im <laughs> important for, for a lot to hear, is about your philosophies on coverage. Like you say, the shot is the shot. And once you've got that shot, you, you don't need other coverage. You don't need anything else. Can you expand on that a little bit more? Well, I just is. I suppose it's the way of way I started out on documentaries, and then just gradually on on lower budget features. I've always operated. Um, I've, I, I say I started off working on lower budgets where you never had the option of in a second camera or a second crew, you know, and um, working with Joel and Ethan all those years. Um, they're of the, a like mind, really. They, they, they don't like working with more than one camera. They don't like zoom lenses. So they like the cameramen to operate. They, they like a small crew, you know. Well, and it's a fine line, though, because you, the film goes through many 
stages if it's a good film in prep you learn more and it sort of changes a little then you shoot and you go oh, well with this actor maybe this is a more angry scene or whatever and then in cutting it also develops its own thing so you need to give an enough so there's a bit of flexibility but you sometimes nowadays the demand for more coverage is because that way the studio can get in and the studio can cut it their way. So if the director's really strong and knows what he wants and can feel the scene as it's playing out in front of him, for instance, in Sicario. Oh, yeah, Denis. Yeah. yeah, with Denis. Yeah, there's a, there's a sequence uh, when, the, when they come back from Mexico with the, the prisoner and uh, the, the scene ends. The, the first shot we took, right? The, yeah, yeah, the cars come in. The scene ends with um, Beneath, um, with Josh and Jenny, Emily yeah. talking in a in a wide shot, a very wide shot, very little high figures. Wide, yeah. I don't think it's that well, high, okay, but anyway, right. yeah. <laughs> uh, and and um, you know, you think well, you, you, you think well, yeah, you're going to go and cover that with closer well, to the dialogue. Well, because that was also the plan. Yeah, it was the plan, and what we talked about. And I said to Denny, "Well, should we? What should we? Who should we start on?" Sort of thing. And he said, no, I don't think we'd do that. I think if I do that, I'll be tempted to use it and I, I want to stay on that shot. Yeah. So he had the strong. confidence to yeah. know that that, that's, that was going to work. And a number of people over the years have mentioned that, that particular scene and the strength of it and the, the way it's played at a distance on this conversation. But again, that was Denis knowing cutting. I think it's really important to know. I mean, and you know cutting. It's just important to know how how you can cut something and make it even stronger. Yeah, I think I think that's a, I think that's a great point. I think for a lot of filmmakers starting out, too, coverage helps you hide mistakes. Mm -hmm. If you made a mistake in something, so I don't think they're saying, and when you're starting out, don't get coverage. Uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> but, I don't but, know, you know, but then you know, you got the other extreme is 1917 when there's not a single piece of coverage. Yeah, but we weren't just starting you know, out. No. <laughs> <laughs> Touche. <laughs> no, I mean no, but I mean there's it's it's what's ever right for the film. Yeah. I mean I've also done films where, I mean like Jarhead, for instance, we'd shoot the shoot 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 the scene in a different way, you know, like multiple times. But I was operating like handheld, and I was just following the actors and the action. And then after each take, I'll go with Sam, and we'd talk about it and say, well, what if you start on this angle next? and then come around on this person, and they do whatever. And then sometimes I would talk to the actors while I was shooting it handheld and walking along with Jake or something. I'd say, well, can you just slow down a bit? I'm going to come around your back, and then I'm going to look at... You know, and it's, every film has a different way of, of work. You, you work in a slightly different way, you know? So there's another example of... <laughs> we looked at the script that seemed really interesting, very, very strange and dark and wacky and if pulled off would be incredible and really makes a statement and very funny so great we thought the script was great so we met with the director and we talked about a number of things and I did ask him I said so to make this work we're gonna have to really know what the shots are right um, to know that we're gonna hard cut between this and that he said, yeah, 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 yeah. And then I just want to shoot a whole lot of stuff so I can figure it out in the editing room. We did not do that movie. <laughs> <laughs> you know? 
I mean, it's fine. I mean, that's, that's their approach. Way, so it's yeah. fine, but uh, it's not something that we particularly enjoy. And side note on Sicario, it's playing tonight at the Texas Theater if anyone wants to see the shot they were talking about in, on a big screen. Oh, yeah. Yes. So let's, uh, and Julio Cedillo, who is in that film, uh, will do an intro to uh, Sicario tonight at Texas. So a little plug for that this evening. Hi. Um, so let's say um, you are working on a film and the director says, okay, I want to shoot it in the style of the Rio Bravo. Do you get your crew together and No, <laughs> it's never, never happened. I mean, sometimes a director has said, um, before we did, uh, before I shot uh, The Man Who Wasn't There with Joel and Ethan, um, they mentioned um, a Hitchcock film, but it wasn't for the photography, it was for the setting and the feel, uh, the feel of small town California. I don't, I don't remember a director ever saying, I want it to look like such and such. And I think if a director said that, I would be really kind of upset. I went to an interview once where a director said, um, I want this film to look like Shawshank Redemption. <laughs> and I said, why? It's not Shawshank Redemption. He said, no, I just want it to look like Shawshank Redemption. I didn't do the film. I don't want to do something that looks like something else. I want to shoot a film that looks like the film itself. I mean, otherwise it's, it's not fun. It's, I can't, I can't, I couldn't copy that. When, when um, Denny approached us about working on Blade Runner, it was like, uh, do you want it to look like the original? I can't shoot like Jordan Cronenworth, I don't want to. I couldn't, the harder, I just no way I could. So, no, but we, d we said no, and then he said, no, it's going to be a film to itself. It just has, a, a, you know, it's a follow-on, but it's, it's a film that should stand by itself and has the visuals it finds. But at the same time, there are sometimes there are movies that the feel of, you know, we'll, we'll talk about, oh, the feel of this movie or that movie. Yeah, that's right. I mean, like mm -hmm. Shadow of Doubt was a Hitchcock film. I was thinking about Joseph Cotton. But it was it was the feel of it. It was not, wasn't that, you know, it's lit in a certain way. You know, um, I think that would be just too restrictive. You know. Yeah, you were talking about more an era of an essence. You know, an essence of the 1960s westerns with John Wayne. You know, you want something that reflects that sensibility as opposed to the, the film itself. I always think it's funny when people are doing a film and they say, "Well, we're doing a western, and it's we want it to look like that." Well. That film, that whatever film, the searches or whatever, looked like it did because of certain technologies, certain limitations, certain approach, certain cultural uh, mores that that created that kind of film. Um, why would you do it now? I always find it funny when somebody says, "Well, we're doing a period film, so it should be sepia," but people's eyes weren't different <laughs> in 1500 or whenever than they <coughs> are now. I mean, so I, why should thing be sepia? If you're going to do that, if you're going to go that far, it's got to be for a, uh, a better, deeper reason than just so I'm trying to reflect something that's old. 
And I think that's kind of ridiculous, <laughs> you know what I mean? Great. Over here. Is there something in particular you shooting, you're shooting or you've shot? There's like a shot, it's like, I gotta get a shot of this apple or something like that. No, I know, but I mean, do, do you have a specific example or just in general? Kind of has to fit within the within the scene. So if the apple's not important to the scene, it becomes just an insert. But if the fact is they're putting poison in the apple, or the apple is what's going to kill the person later, um, an insert of that can be sort of a forewarning or something. So it has a a purpose. Um, I just remember talking to Conrad Hall. You know who Conrad Hall is one of the greatest cinematographers ever, American cinematographer. And he said, just because it's an in-shot shot, people say, well, second, second camera can pick that up while we move on. He said, but it's still on a 40-foot screen. It still stays there for the amount of time that maybe an actor's face does. It's as important as any other element of the film, and it should be treated as, as, as important as any other element of the and And... Yeah, I kind of think, I look at sort of, I go, Andrei Tarkovsky, again, look at his films when he does an insert. Wow, that really means something, you know? Yeah, there kind of has to be a reason to, to go to that object or person or whatever finger. Um, and then it can be very powerful and very helpful in editing, actually. But does, it, does that answer your question a little bit? No. <laughs> <laughs> like for no control old man, you know, like he slipped the coin mm -hmm. and, uh, in front of the. Yeah, the, the clerk. Yes. Yeah. So, how do you like design that shot? Like, how do you know, like, this is the right moment for me to capture that shot in that way? Well, I mean, that, that, um, that was sort of storyboarded that way. And that's just in the discussions with a director and, um, yeah, I mean, well, it's I also don't know. the coin itself is going to determine the fate of the guy, so it heightens the tension. The significance of it, yeah. I mean, and I think the best info insert in No Country for Old Men is the <laughs> is the um, I don't know if it's a peanut packet or it's a sweet packet or something in the garage, and it's just going uncrunching, and it's just the sound and the time it takes, and and it's kind of an inconsequential insert, but I mean, it means so much, doesn't well, it? Well, it develops tension, too, because yeah. sometimes when it's inconsequential, we're having trouble with that word, um, it, it, it unsettles you, because why am I looking at this? And, and so that's a good use of, of an insert. And sometimes it's taking you away from action that you kind of want to know what's going on, which is 
also uh, creates an emotion. So, I mean, inserts can be quite powerful. It's the inserts where they're just using it to bridge a continuity era uh, that don't work. Okay, good. Maybe, you know, think a little bit of like the, the old Hitchcock adage, you know, you put the bomb under the chair and you show the bomb under the chair, then the conversation between two people that don't know the bombs under the chair all of a sudden becomes more impactful, basically, <laughs> and that's why that that's insert good. shot is there. You do know insert shots. <laughs> it's not my job to answer these questions. I'm, I'm just the guy with the microphone today. You, you can raise your hand first. Hi. You got it. Um, I was going to say, I love 1917. It's one of my favorite films of all time. And for a film like that that is so driven by the cinematography and you can't uh, use the edits kind of, I guess, not hybrid mistakes, but kind of... Roger doesn't make mistakes. Yeah. <laughs> so, for a film like that, what is your process in terms of, like, what do we see and how do we use the camera to kind of show the whole world of that? Well, it's the same as if you were doing it in cuts. You still kind of kind of figure, and when 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 we started talking about it, Sam was saying, "Well, don't think about technology. Don't think about how we're going to do it. Just think about where should we put the camera and the audience, um, you know, in respect to to what's happening in the story, how it's developing. Where do we want to be wide? Yeah, where, where do one would close in? Where do we want to go off one character and follow another character and then come back? How do we want to, yeah, how, how do we want that shot to develop? And so that's, but that is the same as if you were shooting it in cuts. It, it's no different. It's just then you've got to string all those cuts together and not have them. Um, you know, so then it becomes a, t a technological challenge rather than a creative challenge. Um, and I, I, and that, I think that was the trick about that film because obviously that sounds simple. Okay, I want to be wide on this moment and then close on this moment. You, well, you have to join it together in some way, um, so, uh, in, in such a way that it's not, it feels, um, it feels um, of a piece with the story rather than being a device. And uh, I think there's some films that have used the idea of a continuous shot, but you felt, well, why am I watching somebody go from A to B, which is taking like four minutes when you could cut? And uh, you know what I mean? And that, that I think was the trick which we were really most worried about that it, I mean, I was most, we were both worried it being a gimmick and actually yeah, said yeah. as much to Sam, is this a gimmick? But, but um, you know, once we started playing around and drawing, we storyboarded the whole thing, um, we felt that it did feel right, that we, we, we weren't going to take the audience out of it by having some just go from A to B, you know? Basically, we were cutting it ahead of time. We were saying, we'll be a single here, we'll have a double. Because it's also, we were following them through a trench, which is could get really boring, just being behind them or being in front of them. So it really was important to think of it as a normal film first, and then you know decide where you want it to be, and then give it to us and say, so you guys figure out how to shoot it. <laughs> Which is basically what happened. Yeah. Sam said, after that, I said, well, how are we going to do it? He said, well, that's up to you. Yeah. <laughs> is there something that you had to learn the hard way in the industry that you wish you'd learned in film school? <laughs> 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 um, 
uh, so much so much of the job really is about the politics yeah. on, on some of the some of the you know some of the larger films uh, it's well even smaller ones really it's about politics and about relationships and i've never been very good at that <laughs> i think one of the first things that i learned was i was coming from commercials into features and somebody told me you can tell who's a feature creature and who's coming from commercials because if there's a disagreement, the commercial person will have it out and will get into that. The feature creature knows they're gonna leave, live with this person for three months, so they wait and they try and make it work out. And I've always remembered that because it's true, <laughs> you know, that just always remember you're gonna be with these people for three or four months and you should hold off if you can and then get them at the rap party. <laughs> Persephone? Yeah. So I, I, uh, I believe I once heard Billy Wilder say that he preps for every movie the same way. He prepares, 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 and then he throws it out the second he gets his head. And I'm just curious if you could speak to that uh, from a cinematographer's perspective, because I, I'm a director myself, and I have a plan, I have a shot list, but the minute I get to set and I see the light hitting the actor's face, they start to say the words, you start to block it out, and you think, oh no, this is not at all what I had in mind. And then I worked with my cinematographer to, to figure it out and, and adjust that plan. I think for me, mad, leaving room and space for magic is super important. And I'm just curious if you can speak to that and how you, how you as a cinematographer leave space for magic and finding new things on set. That's a great way of going about it. Yeah, I mean, I think, I, yeah, I think that's the trick, really, not to get tied into to, to prep. I did, I mean, I've done films like right across the board where, you know, um, with Alex Cox or Sid Nancy, I think Alex is going to be in town soon. Um, where whatever we talked about went out the window because everything became like shooting a documentary. So I started doing it handheld after a few days. We used a dolly and stuff, and I thought, no, this isn't going to work. Um, and to the other extreme, which is working with uh, M. Night Shyamalan on The Village, and I spent five weeks maybe with 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 him storyboarding with him the whole film thinking that would be a basis for what we did and then finding when the actors came and the actors had an idea and maybe M. Night wasn't on set and we would work out the scene I would work out the scene with the actors and we would sort of come up with a different piece of coverage and uh, M. Night would come back and said, no, 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 they've got to be it's standing like this, and it's, that's not what's on the storyboard. So you, you shot exactly what was on the storyboard, which I thought was very restrictive. I mean, I don't think it's a bad film, actually, but um, I think it could have been a better film if it was allowed a little bit more um, space, really. It, it's, um, I think the trick is that what well, Billy Wilder is saying about prep is to get to know the material, get what yeah. James said earlier, What's, what's the essence, what's the important th moment for this in this story? Um, and then you always have that in your head. So even when you see the light and the actor doing something different, it's still in your head, why did you take this project? Why did you write it if you wrote it? What, what are you trying to get out of it? You know, I don't think you're ever gonna break that because that's, that's why you're there. Yeah, but it's, it, I think it's really important to see 
the magic, as you said, on the set, because that makes a better movie, I think, because there's no way that you know what happens when the actor is actually there and says the line in a different way than you had had in your head, and you go, wow, that's an, I never thought of that, and you have to go with it, and it makes a much better movie, so I think you're on the right track. I find a lot, you know, that you actually overthink in prep, and sometimes mm -hmm. when the actor yeah, gets there, yeah. when the actor gets there and you think, my God, okay, I'm just gonna shoot <laughs> a mid shot and we don't need anything else. No, I'm serious, I used to do music videos a lot, you know, and if the band was no good, you used to move the camera as much as possible. <laughs> but if it was Eric Clapton or something, nah, B.B. King, nah, you just hold the shot. It's, uh, and also Benicio on uh, Sicario, he kept going up to Denis, and you never hear an actor saying this, going, you know all these lines on the page? I don't really need to say them. I can do it on my face, or you could give them to Josh. Give the lines <laughs> to Josh, yeah, and he did, you know. Thank you. Uh, let me hit this section. Anybody in the section? Oh, there we go, right there. Um, so as creators, I'm sure a lot of us look at our lives through like camera lenses or the movie, so how do you use the world around you to expand your creativity? By noticing things, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think we were talking about earlier, you know, I think life experience, if you don't have life experience, what are you putting into your work? Um, you know, I, I was very lucky um, getting into documentaries and actually experiencing parts of the world that I've never got to see, you know, places and people I, I would have never experienced any other way. So I think that was really important. But I think we both, I mean, you know, working on films is a lifestyle and it's also... Uh, an experience of life, and it's not just um, the joy of making the film, it's the joy of actually meeting and experiencing people. Like when we went to Morocco on, on, with Marty on Kundun, I mean, it was, I think, one of the greatest experiences of our lives because, because of the people we met, not necessarily about the film process, but just the people that we met and the experience of that part of the world and that life, you know? And I think life can get so crazy sometimes. You could definitely, and I'm, I definitely am guilty of this, you can race through life without looking at anything. But you just need to take the time and, and maybe look across the street and see the way the trees in front of the house and go, well, wow, I, I like that look. Why is it? And, and sort of that's gathering this library of images in your head that you can use at another time. Yeah, it's also nice working on films as well and actually exploring, you yeah. know, like with the Tibetans, exploring that culture and uh, that, that history and, and even uh, like a film like Sicario, which is not quite contemporary, but it was pretty interesting exploring the period that it was set in and what was happening at the border at that time. Pretty horrendous. Yeah. But, you know, you, you yeah, you, you're kind of... You live in life at the same time as you're working on a movie, aren't you? You know. Well, and, and uh, so I think that kind of plays in a little bit to your book, By Ways. So, <laughs> if, you like that segue? <laughs> Is that good? So, uh, so By Ways, which we had the the book signing last night at the, uh, I feel like a shill for the Texas <laughs> Theater today, uh, at the Texas Theater last night. Um, that book in particular, you know, you took a lot of those photographs while you were 
you know, working on a project somewhere, but in your downtime or between things, just things that you noticed and pictures that you wanted to take in, it's a little bit of an example of just stopping to take a look at life around you and not so be so focused on what you're doing and then maybe, you know, applying that to your life a little later. Yeah, but I mean, I don't, I, yeah, I don't directly connect them to the film world at all. I mean, they're much more kind of my personal little yeah, but they're quirky vision. Your life yeah, experience. You know, yeah, my life experience, actually, that's a different side of me, maybe. But yeah, but um, yeah, I mean, I find that really important. I, I love, I don't take many photographs, but I love that time where I try uh, and I just go around like tomorrow. I'll probably walk around the city just looking and maybe I'll take one photograph, maybe not. I don't know. But I just love exploring and things. And also when you do that during a film, it takes your mind off of the film. It keeps that visual muscle moving, but you're not thinking about the film and how you're going to light it and how blah, blah, blah. blah. Yeah, it's true. If I've had, <laughs> had a bad day on the shoot and I haven't been <laughs> completely happy with what I've done, and I go out and take a photograph at the end of the day, I'll, oh, well, I'm okay now. <laughs> When, what is the process that you go through when deciding on what camera and lens package you're going to use for a specific project? And if you have maybe like a favorite camera and lens that you kind of go to from time to time? Not really. I mean, I'm not really into technology that much. I mean, I, I like, I've always used the lenses that I felt the sharpest, the cleanest, you know, less elation, the lightest, the easiest for my assistant to focus pull on. Um, well, this basically the same with the cameras. I just pick a camera that's, you know, sits on my shoulder well when it was, you know, when I was starting out, like uh, it was shot with an Arri BL. And then, um, and since it's been shooting digitally, I've just liked the Alexa, so I've, we've just stuck with the Alexa. Yeah. I mean, I don't. I mean, now and again, I'll sort of test other cameras and other lenses, but I'm, I'm, like, I'm a, bit, a bit sort of stick to what I know, you know. Well, with the Alexa too, we like the color space. What the work that they did on the color space, and there is a difference. So once the Alexa came out, we went, oh, okay, we can go into digital now. Um, but we are trying to shoot it the way we want it to end up. In other words, we're not saying, oh, later, we're going to add this and that. We're from, it's kind of from the old days of film. You had to make mm. it look the way you wanted it to look because you couldn't change it later. Yeah, I mean, I don't like bells and whistles, so I'm like a real simple <laughs> camera. I mean, like now I shoot with a digital Leica I got in my bag, um, you know, which is just like you know mechanical kind of thing. It's not even through the lens viewfinder. Which is sometimes frustrating, but <coughs> but you know I like the simplicity, and um, I, that's that's how I work on film as well. I mean that's why I operate. That's why that my lighting's really simple. Um, yeah. Hmm. Screaming ADs, hate that. 
Yeah, I mean, when I started, the, the, the ADs were very, very loud. They were like sergeant majors. That's that English like, ADs still. Uh, yeah, English ADs. That was horrendous. Um, I think my biggest peeve is after you've shot a shot or got, got a scene and you're moving on to something else, my biggest peeve is often the actors and sometimes the director oh, yeah. and the producer might stand on the set and be chatting. And I've got the pressure of relighting for the next setup or whatever, or laying a track or whatever. And I have to try and get the AD to get them off so I can work. I, I kind of find that a little disrespectful. Everybody's got space. You've got to give the actors the space when they're rehearsing or the time when you're shooting. You've got to judge when you can go in and tweak a light or when you've got to live with what you've done, even if you don't like it, because you'll interrupt what the actor's going to give you. And I think that's fair. But then I think you need that in return, because I, I think there's a lack of understanding that you know the electricians have got things to do, the, the grips have got to do things between shots. And I think there should be respect for that. So. That sort of noise on set in between the actual time when the camera runs is a bit, I know, bit, bit of a peeve. Okay. That got serious. I thought that was lighthearted. <laughs> 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 I, I, I did not ask something like super philosophical or like work out. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yes. I'll bring it back to the serious Some people wouldn't say it's here to stay yet. Yeah, right, I mean, yeah. Some people still shooting film. I mean, I would shoot film if a director particularly wanted to shoot film. But um, what well, that transition? I mean, it was it was it was actually quite slow coming. I mean, there was yeah. I mean, there was the other one, the uh, the first cameras that tethered you, you know, to the big uh, monitor in the back, and so it was kind of cumbersome. But I, I will say that when we saw the Alexa and we decided to do in time with the Alexa, everybody started getting interested in the Alexa. And I went to the academy. You weren't with me that night. And I found myself with a circle of DPs around me going, what's he shooting at? What's the speed? Why is he doing this? Blah, blah, blah. And everybody was really suddenly interested in digital. And I think that you helped. You helped the demise of the film. <laughs> yeah, but you kind of wait. You know, you wait till it gets to that tipping point. Now, like mm -hmm. we all talk about tipping points now in a context of something else, but <laughs> um, which is a bit more serious. So I won't go there. Stop. But stop. Um, um, no, but there was bring a tipping point where, where <laughs> a tipping point where you know digital just offered more than f you were getting with film. I felt that was that was my c call on that. But the same thing happened in the post-production world because I think the first film that was went totally through a digital post was Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And 
that really started a big trend. So, I mean, I think really once that happened, then the idea of digital capture was much more easily sort of accepted, you know, or, or you could see what the opportunities with it were, you know? And, and also the fact that more and more movies are using more and more visual effects. So to, since visual effects are done digitally, to start in digital ends up generally with a better product because you're not trying to fit it in. Um, so I think but that I think it's too. interesting, you know, back to the DI, because you think the, the, no, the rush... The yeah, rush yeah. to do DIs in post, what was it? Only a few years mm. and everybody was d finishing in DI. And now even the, the, the people that are still shooting uh, film capture are still digitizing. Most of the releases, are, I mean, if they go back to a negative, I mean, even, um, you know, even the people, <laughs> you know, the film's in an interesting place because some people go back to film and then go back digital oh, right. again. So, like, Greg Fraser shoots Batman, yeah. Yeah. transfers it onto film, transfers it back to digital because yeah. he wants to get a look of film, yeah. which I think is great. I mean, uh, you could do anything you want, but um, I think it was the DI that really changed. Does everyone know the, what DI the, means when he says DI? Can you, will you give a quick explanation for, for some... Well, it's just a digital, digital finish. So if you shoot, if you shoot a, 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 if you shoot an emulsion negative, then you scan that negative and you time it as a, as a file, as a digital file. Yeah, it's called a digital intermediate. So in the old days, there used to be an internegative or a CRI. And um, now there was a DI. Um, and then it became... Yeah, you would go back to film. I mean, like, oh, brother went back to film after after well, the digital timing. Well, that's because they were timing. still releasing yeah. in yeah. film. Nowadays, still releasing in film, releasing but now less and yeah. less in film. And so you said that if a if a director wanted to shoot film, maybe you would do film. You've done digital for so long now. Mm -hmm. Would uh, like if a director came to you and said, "I really want to shoot this on film," would you be like, "Why?" You know, what is it? What is it? You know, that about the story and the character that requires this to be shot on film, as opposed to the ease of the process and the workflow of of digital? Would you? I mean, I, of course, you have a question. You know, you would have, have that conversation with the director. But can you talk about a little bit? Hey, a little bit. Has anyone recently, or you know, said we should shoot this next thing on film? Or? No, I mean the last one we did was Hell Caesar, which right. yeah, I thought could have been digital, but. The, the guys wanted to shoot film. Yeah, they thought it would be more of the era, but I think that you could have made it that era, in, like ectochrome in uh, digitally rather easily. But um, the problem with shooting in film nowadays is you don't have the same infrastructure. You don't have the same technical people in, in the labs. You certainly don't. And you don't have the same technical people in Kodak. So when we did Hail Caesar, we had a problem. And I had to figure out what the problem was, and I had to do everything else first, because Kodak would always say, no, it's the camera, it's that. But it was the emulsion, and it was the film. And they didn't have a technician that could come to me and do it. I had to do it and tell them. So it, you, you kind of feel all alone out there if you're doing film. Yeah, that's really interesting. That experience in the industry is long gone now. Yeah. You know, they've, they've gone digital. Re retired or died or yeah. gone digital, and that, that expertise is just yeah. isn't there anymore to be able to yeah. support it's film. kind of sad. Yeah. Um, I, I was wondering, like, how would you like, recommend like, approaching cinematography from a like, student kind of like, 
Could everyone hear the question? She, basically, she want, yes, everyone heard it? Don't have to repeat it? Okay, good. What we've heard so many times recently in the podcast, when we've been doing the podcast, are people that have done quite a lot of films, but they say with limitations comes inspiration. You figure out another way to do what you want, um, and it turns out to be a better way, instead of just throwing money at it. So don't despair. But I think it's, I, I think, <laughs> I, th I think, you have more freedom in a funny kind of way on a smaller budget film, mm -hmm. you know, with fewer people. Um, you do something like a Blade Runner or something, your expectations are so high, you know. I mean, yeah, it gets into the whole world of effects and backgrounds and not necessarily what you're doing with the camera, but, um, you know, the, the, the expectations and the pressure is so high. I mean, there's never enough time or money. doesn't matter if you've got five million or 200 million, it's... There's never so. Uh, I think <laughs> I a bit flippantly say you've got to get used to it. <laughs> as soon as you pick up a camera, you're compromising in some way. But but also, I mean, <laughs> you're when you're creating a film, you're creating a reality. So it's what you create. So you can do that by saying, okay, so this is what I want, and I don't have enough for the set. Well, let me make it. You know completely limited in the frame and make them guess what's over there or something like that and it ends up being something yeah I, I think as jane said earlier i mean it, it i think restrictions lead to creativity and sometimes you overthink things like there was wonderful the uh, moment on on blade runner when we were talking about stage space and the amount of money it would take to build the las vegas casino and I said, well, why is it going to take any money? You don't need walls. We'll just black the whole place and put some atmosphere in and I'll light it. And they went, what? <laughs> and, you know, I was the cheapest set and on the whole part of the movie. But it's like that, that came from having to be creative with, with, with the fact you didn't have enough money for that particular set. Well, and also on Sicario, and we didn't have a lot of money, and we had to do the interior of the van, and we were trying to find a van that we could... Oh, the swap van. Yeah, yeah, the the, yeah, and it ended up just being plywood and with a lighting effect going through. Yeah, I said, and you, it don't, great. You, you, don't need, you don't need a swap vehicle. We don't need to cut it in half so we can get the crew inside and get the shots. I said, just make it out of plywood because you're not going to see it. I'll just light it as though you're in a moving thing and we put it on a turntable and I whacked a light through the window and there we were. I mean, if you studied it, it's really crude. <laughs> but nobody does because they're kind of gripped by it. Yeah, red. Uh, what was your first job on a professional set and how long did it take you before you got a job as a I can't remember what my first job was, really. Um, no, I mean, I, I left film school and I, I, I looked for work as a camera assistant and I wasn't getting any work. So I decided I would look for work as a cinematographer because at least I'd feel better about myself. <laughs> and so I, I just went knocking on doors. I'm a very shy person even now, but I used to be incredibly um, shy and insecure. But one day I had a couple of beers probably and I, w I went and knock, knocked on a door of 
somewhere in Wardour Street where all the little film companies were and they w I was looking to get to shoot music videos. So, uh, and <laughs> I knocked on this one door and this guy said, oh, okay, I'm not doing anything, but I'll look at your work. And so I put my work on his flatbed, Steamboat, you know, so he could watch the film reel I had. And he said, uh, oh, I'm not doing any music videos. I'm, I'm, I'm shooting a little independent feature film in a few weeks' time. I said, well, let me do that. And he looked at my work a bit more seriously. He said, okay. Um, it was just, I don't know if that was the first one, but that was the first uh, film with uh, a kind of largest crew and lighting and, you know, ADs that screamed and the whole bit. What about you, James, for your first? <laughs> the first movie I did was um, directed by a guy that used to per uh, direct porn. And you just can't take the porn out of the guy. This was a straight movie, but it really, and so instead of, it was a SAG movie, and instead of hiring actresses, everyone was a playmate. And I learned the difference between a playmate and a bunny. But the problem was that they had their shirts off in the film a lot, but I would go to take a continuity photo of something, and they say, and they were very sweet. They, oh, let me sit in, let me sit in. But I could never keep those Polaroids because they kept getting stolen from me. <laughs> and the guy, the the producer would come on set every day with these big Dixie cups of something and give it to the um, director and the AD and himself. And I realized I had to work with these people, and I didn't. Uh, so I was really trying really hard. So. I got to the point where I got a Dixie cup, and it was either vodka or gin. I don't know what it was. <laughs> I thought, oh my God, now what do I do? So I was killing all the plants on the set. So it was, it was not a good shoot, but I still continued. It was the, probably one of the worst movies I've ever worked on. <laughs> but I guess the important part is, is you, you stuck with it and you continued in your career after that. Yeah, I decided to do commercials for a while and then I did a TV movie which was almost as bad because there were like 15 cameras hidden and, and I'd be running before the take to try and find out where the cameras were so I could indicate it on the notes, so yeah. Can I ask what the difference between a playmate and a bunny is? Yeah, the, <laughs> sure. I, I don't know, yeah, I'm just I curious. The playmates are in the magazine, but the bunnies, so they're a little higher up in the echelon, and, and the bunnies are the ones that are in the clubs that are serving people. So if you call a playmate a bunny, it's a bad thing, I know. Okay. I don't think the Playboy clubs exist anymore, so. Yeah, I wouldn't know. <laughs> All right, let's get this conversation back Sorry. on track here. Sorry. <laughs> uh, in the corner here. Hello. So you guys talk to a lot of incredible actors uh, on your podcast. Wondering because you talk about like the blend of the performative aspect of an actor, like how focused they are on themselves, and then their spatial awareness with like the geography of the camera. Who do you think embodies like the best mix of that that you've worked with so far? And then what would be something that you don't enjoy in an actor as far as that kind of mix of uh, personality? Well, there's some actors that. Um, that don't want anybody to look at them, which is a little difficult, because especially if you're doing continuity. Um, you kind of have to look at them. And then they, uh, we did one and, and everything stopped because he said, 
there are people here, there are people here, and we couldn't figure out who the people were, but there was a big silk up and there were just a bunch of boots, you know, because they were standing behind the silk, not to get into his eyeline. Um, so hey, that's we worked, we met on a film, right, in South Dakota, yeah. but um, we were filming the actor, Val Kilmer. Oh, you're going to tell the name. Yeah, no, <laughs> Val, he's a very sweet guy, but uh, it, we were filming Val uh, right in the middle of nowhere, <laughs> and he said, there's people in my eye line, and we all looked around, and it was miles away. There was a kid sitting on the back of a pickup. I mean, you could just make him out on the horizon. So the AD had to send somebody out to get these people out the way. And yeah, everybody else had to stand by the behind the silk, <laughs> but then he saw their feet, so he had to drop the silk so you couldn't see the feet. And I think it was Bruce or somebody, my dolly grip or that at the time, Probably. said, well, he does theater in New York. What's, what's, does he turn Everybody his turn around. Does the, does the audience turn their backs to the stage? I mean, it doesn't make sense. But you have to laugh. I mean, the thing is, they all have a different process, which is fine. I mean, sometimes you're working with an actor and they don't want any contact with you at all, like nothing. They're totally into who they are and they don't care about the crew or anything, which is a bit weird, but that's their process. And sometimes other people like Morgan Freeman on, 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 on Shawshank would be doing these most emotive scenes where he had to cry or whatever, or in the parole board or whatever. But in between setups, he'd be telling a joke. You know, he'd maybe get before the punchline, they'd put a slate on, he'd do the shot, he'd cry and or whatever. And then the director would say, cut, Frank would say, cut. And then Morgan would finish the story. And you go, well, that's amazing. But everybody's so different, you know? Well, someone like George McKay, who was in 1917, he was wonderful because he had to be aware of the camera. And usually you try and set it up so they don't have to think about the camera because a lot of them don't like to. But I asked him, I, I said, is this hard for you? Because you have to be in a certain uh, point at a certain place. He said, no, that he... He loved it because he loved knowing the process, but that was who George was. But he also said that sometimes actors come in and they're just told, be there. Just, you have to be there and just do it. Or, he says the other extreme was the directors who said, oh, you can do whatever you want, just do it. So he liked the in-between that we were doing in 1917. There was one actor, that we were, when we were shooting film, and. Uh, my assistant was reloading the camera and the actor said, what the effing do we need that for? Let's just do it again. <laughs> he thought, wow, he's not quite on the same planet. <laughs> or, or another actor where I worked with and I came on set one day and, um, and you know, I had a good relationship with him. I said, hey, how are you doing? And, he, and it was a movie about a serial killer and he goes, not so good, James. I'm doing my first kill today. And it's like, okay, whatever. <laughs> Everyone's going to go hit IMDb after this and be like, who are they talking about? So one of the scenes that gives me goosebumps just thinking about it is that Jesse James, the train scene at night with the dolly where the train hits the camera. How did you decide to do that versus any other option? I mean, it's... It's just so eerie. It sets, it sets the mood. Can you just talk about that for a bit? Um, that was something Andrew wanted. That was something 
But when we were storyboarding, he said, well, let's have that. Let's connect it so we can feel the weight of the train. And, and then there was this whole thing, of how, how are we going to do it? And, you know, again, it was a lot of overthinking. So I, <laughs> I, said to the, um, I said to the key grip, can you get me some foam? And I just put the camera on a piece of foam on the flatbed that the train hit, and that was it. I said, we'll just dry it, and it was fine. <laughs> And they were trying all these kind of controlled kind of, I don't know, how to keep those things apart and so they weren't going to bash each other, but you needed it bashing each other. But uh, no, that was really, uh, that was one of Andrew's, uh, you know, I must have that shot. I really like that shot. Sometimes a director has a very, very strong um, idea of a shot and they stick with it all the way through. It's interesting. But I think that's a great example of a practical shot as opposed to a visual effect, right? And sometimes doing the practical shot is just going to be better than, you know, spending weeks on some particular visual effect and trying to get this right and let's fix it in post or we're not even going to do this. It's all going to be 100% digital train, digital camera, digital everything moving. I know in our conversations the last couple of days, you obviously prefer real sets, real locations, real practical effects. Um, can you just talk about that a little bit? Well, you take the fun out of it if you're in yeah. a blue screen room like this with blue screen or, or a, a, a LED screen around you and actors here. I mean, what's the point? I, I, don't, I don't like it. But then uh, I was brought up in a slightly different world than people have been brought up in now. I might say uh, the first film I ever, the first large film I did was 1984, which, you know, the first big studio uh, stage work and everything. And we never, there's no effects work in that at all post. It's all done in camera, including, and I think it might have been one of the last shots done this way. We did a glass shot where we set the camera up in a landscape and, and had a piece of glass of 45 degrees, big piece of glass in front of the camera, blacked off. And then we had a painter two days painting in tower blocks and then like a, a, a big metallic kind of um, structure that was holding, holding this telescreen. Then we got an art projector, well I didn't, but the effects uh, a projectionist uh, uh, specialist got this projector and it projected an image we'd shot to fit into where the screen was on this painting, on this piece of glass with the background going. And then we got some extras to walk in the background and shot the shot. And it's all done in camera. I mean, it's like ridiculous now. Of course, you would do it all CG. But it was a lot of fun. And I think a lot of that sort of fun's gone out of it. And there's so many things you can do, as you say, like some things you can do really simply. So why the hell? Go to effects. Why not have the thing there for the actor? Why not have the image on the big screen so the actors can react to it instead of putting it in after? I, I don't get it. Well, a lot of times on set, there is hurry, 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 and they say, okay, we'll, we'll do it in visual effects. No, it's only going to take 15 minutes. Just wait. And a lot of times they won't. But, you know, seeing 1984 the other day when we were remastering it, it really struck me the scene with 1,200 people in it because you've gotten so used to seeing digi doubles in crowd scenes. It's such a difference when it's actually real people yeah. in the frame. And, and also, I think sometimes when it's done in post, 
there's too much emphasis on oh, what's yeah, being yeah. put in post. Everybody's costumed and I perfectly. One of, one of those scenes, in the hanging sequence in 1984, you hardly see the screens. There's two 45-foot squ square screens up there being with an image on that's been projected with an arc projector. And it's all a huge setup, but actually we're on the actors and the characters, and they just, you know, you see it in another scene, but for most part, it's part of the background. It's not the emphasis of the shot because yeah, yeah. you're actually filming a story with actors, you know. I think that's a, a fun challenge for maybe some of you film students is what, what can you do practical? Think of, you know, something that you would normally do or think you, oh, you could only do earlier. You were saying, oh, I can only do this if I have more money. Try and think of that creative way to do something with a practical effect. Maybe that's a like a 48-hour film challenge <laughs> thing or an assignment for, for the professors in the audience. Um, more questions over here? Go ahead. Uh, I've got a question with uh, pertaining to dialogue, uh, the scene that's heavy in dialogue uh, and pre-visualization pre with the edit, um, how you decide, like, two extremes might be, if styles might be, something like Tree of Life where it's just a lot of jump cuts uh, and it's, it's very documentary-like versus, like, 12 Angry Men where everything's extremely choreographed and lines match up and everything. Uh, the temptation that I'm having with uh, some of the dialogue scenes I'm trying to storyboard and, and make shot lists for is, well, let's just have two cameras, you know. Well, let's do a ton of takes and focus on every actor, and there's, you know, there's an ensemble of casts in this room. Um, how, how do you, I mean, how do you go about planning a heavy dialogue scene with, with multiple actors? And um, on the day of the shoot, the shoot like, let's say, you know, all the prep you've done goes out the window and, you know, you come up with new ideas. Um, how do you talk about the edit uh, with the director? What is that? I mean, is that just constantly in the conversation of like, okay, we're going to cut from this wide to this medium shot, but then <coughs> this line, I think we're going to cut to the close-up of the other character. Is that all? Well, it varies very much depending on the director's way of working. I mean, you, 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 you mentioned two, two films, two directors. I mean, all of Terry Malick's films have that style, that stylistic approach. And all of Sidney Lumet's films are like, he was absolutely renowned for doing one or two takes and never shooting more of a shot than he needed in the cut. And that's the way Joel and Ethan started out when I, when I was started working with them. They would do a conversation like a two-handed conversation, they might shoot the wide shot for the first line because they only needed the wide shot for the first line. Then they'd go into the coverage and they would only shoot one actor that they wanted to be on for a certain line. I mean, it was amazing because they were just, they'd come up without the money to do it any other way. And, and the last times I've worked with them, they're a little bit more free and they'll let the actors run and they'll shoot a longer shot. But uh, it's very much the, 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 the director's sort of style of approach. Yeah, and I think um, thinking about whatever the scene is and if there are two people that are interacting and they're seated together, you can get a two shot because that's a variety because you don't want everything to be single, single or whatever to th think about that and to, to know what you're covering, to know where you're using the shots is actually kind of important because the eye lines keep changing depending on who you're coming off of. So that's really critical to get sort of 
thought about before you get on set, because when you get on set, it gets a little crazy and it's harder to um, remember. But also, if you could do something that even you know went from one person to another person, again, that's a variety of a shot because the uh, I would think the thing you wouldn't want to do is just have the same types of shots. You want to have some kind of, and maybe an insert. We could do an insert on that one too. <laughs> I think, but, um, but I think before all that, you've got to decide. Well, what's the weight of the scene? Now you might have, you might have thought that when you wrote it or when you did prep. You think, what well, what is the weight of the scene? Who's, you know, who's the antagonist and protagonist, or whatever you want to think of it. Who who is this? Which character is the focal point of this scene? Then maybe that changes during the scene. Then maybe when you, though you see a rehearsal with the actors, maybe that changes. Maybe you realize who you thought was the central character actually doesn't have to be the center of character in this. Maybe, maybe that character is more of an observer. So you shoot the other characters in a more sort of active way. And yet the main character of the film may be is an observer shot on a still, ca a still camera at a distance. You know, I mean, it's like that's how it all kind of like develops. You know, I think what we said earlier, you need a kind of need, don't have to have, but it's kind of good, I think, to have an overall concept. Um, you know, when you're sitting in an office reading a script with a director and everybody else, but on the set to be open to what those things sort of occur to you. But I mean, I think what is death which is what James saying is going around and shooting everybody on a 50 mil in the same size. I mean, that's yeah. death. I mean, and you see it all the time, and it's boring as hell. But it's, it's not only boring, but it's not actually telling the story in any way. It's, yeah. not, it's not furthering the story by the use of the camera, and that's what you're really what filmmaking is. And what can be fun sometimes, if the director's adventuresome enough, is when somebody has a line being behind them, and maybe someone's reacting to the line, and, and that's like they know something the other guy doesn't know or whatever the story is. And that's kind of fun to do because it's also unexpected that the person that's speaking isn't face on to the camera. Um, yeah, but I mean, you know, extreme, play the whole thing on an insert, play this whole... On me doing this. I mean, play it all voice on an insert, why not? <laughs> I mean, you can do anything you want, but people don't have the guts to do it a lot, I feel. they they feel they have to be on somebody when they're talking. They're not even on the reaction, they're on the dialogue, which is... And maybe don't tell the actor, you're, you just you know, set up a camera but shoot the hands and oh, then... We do that all the time. Yeah, don't tell the actor, because <laughs> the actor's gonna think, you know. Um, and then maybe too, you know, something to think about as well, do you need all that dialogue? You know, if it's that dialogue heavy? That's I mean, for your first instinct is to say, of course I wrote this, I need all this dialogue, but you know, as you said, Benicio, Benicio said, yeah. Right. yeah do you really need all the dialogue or can you do it you know without so much and if you get in trouble if you go over someone onto someone else at least you have that person in the foreground telling you where you're at in a way so if you have a couple of shots like that you can get out of eyeline problems <coughs> uh, what's a lesson that you learned in documentary that helped you transition into narrative so I don't think there's sort of a single lesson. It's all like a learning curve, isn't it? I mean, it's like you're kind of like, I don't know if it's learning. You're just finding a way you feel 
you want to put yourself in respect to what's in front of you, what's happening in front of you, and then and, and you get sort of an instinct for how something is developing. So I think what I take from what I took from documentaries is like again, if you're watching a rehearsal with a director in the morning with the actors, um, <laughs> it's funny how often I'll kind of go around to find some sort of viewpoint. And the director will kind of like follow me as though that's the, the, the best position or something to view the scene from, you know. But that, I think that's the, the connection between documentary for me and feature work. Um, but also the idea of, I mean, in terms of lighting, it's this sort of minimalist approach. I mean, I'm quite a minimalist, I think, in terms of lighting. I mean, sometimes I use a, a lot of lights, but it's to do a very simple effect. And I think I take that from shooting documentaries where I didn't have any light and it was just me and a camera and that kind of thing. Hi. Uh, so considering your minimalist approach, what is your attitude towards filtration? Um, for example, I, I would be apprehensive to marry myself to the look of like a chromist and things to that effect. Uh, so how do you approach? Um, the last time I had a filter on the camera was a film that I shot in, uh, would have been 1986, and I still regret it. I shot, I shot the whole film with a very, very light, um, it was, I don't know if it was a black promise, whatever it was back then, and I damn wish I could go back and take it off. And I haven't, I mean, I've used polar screens and things like that since, and NDs, but I've never put it any diffusion on a lens since then. Oh, I lie. I did one couple of shots in Sid and Nancy where we were on a, um, on, a, on a plane and we wanted to make it gauzy and it was a really silly idea, but it was, I mean, it worked for what it was trying to be, but um, I, I, I don't use Promists or I haven't used a fog filter even, no, not for years and years. I guess a question as well. How, how long do we have today? And <laughs> that's your we, we've been chatting for a little while and want to make sure you guys are yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. You keep going? All right, we'll keep going then. I'll just keep circling the room. You guys have a lot of questions, so. What are your, what are your thoughts on AI and this sort of role? On the <laughs> <laughs> uh, we talk a lot about that. We were having a lengthy conversation the other night with Greg Fraser and... and uh, Oh, and Tom Siegel, right. and um, yeah, um, I think there's a lot of quite worried cinematographers out there, yeah. I think that um, DGA's deal just had <coughs> a limited, you know, limited the use of AI, so I think it's a, a big concern in the business, and... Um, we, it's interesting, because we, we started working, you know, on animated films. Like, we were asked to work on Wally and just consult, and that sort of grew, and we've been on quite a lot of animated films. And I always felt that the animation and live action was kind of joining together, and that's, you know, CG and everything, it's joining together, but I always thought that, that live action would have the prominent position in that relationship, but uh, I think <laughs> now it's going the other way with AI. Good way of putting it. I have a very black outlook on uh, everything from society to climate change, but, <laughs> um, 
But, but with AI, uh, uh, AI in the film industry, I, yeah, I don't know. It's, 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 it's um, where is the personality behind it? Does it become, like if you work on an animated film, there's hundreds of people, you know, doing the, the animation and the lighting and setting the shot and, and the rendering and everything else. And it's coordinating all those people to work on towards the same goal like you do on a live action film. I wonder how that's going to work with AI when basically you could, you could have a camera capturing this conversation for two hours. You could take it back into a computer. You can then find the shot for each particular moment and relight it any way you want. Who's doing that? I don't understand how that's going to happen. Is it going to be the, is it going to be the computer technicians? The the, the or is it going to be gamers? Is it going to be live action cinematographers? I'm not sure it is. You see, that's that. I, I don't know. It's going to be a very interesting next five or ten years. So I remember seeing 1917 for the first time uh, with a friend, and we walked away with it with two very different takes. And this kind of gets back to something you mentioned when we were talking about 1917. Uh, and my take was that I, I loved the film and felt that the continuous take added to the tension. And his was he liked the film, but he, he felt that it was more or less um, a gimmick. And I'm actually meeting him after this, and I'm going to tell him maybe what your own uh, take is on the deeper reasoning behind choosing the shoot 1917 as a continuous take. Well, I mean, it was Sam's Sam's uh, idea. It's Sam's it was, fault. Yeah, no, it's not my fault. And it's not a gimmick. No, no, it was on the top of the script, and we thought, well, really, is it a gimmick? And and yeah, he, I actually thought, no way, <laughs> he's yeah. not going to do that. No, we didn't. We didn't think he was going to do it. But then um, he did say when we started talking about it, he said, "Well, if we don't feel it, if we feel it's not going to work, then we'll do it in cuts." And it, we just say we designed the the shot and worked through the locations that we could make it work in, and and. I don't know, it just felt right. I mean, it's a very particular story that takes place in real time, so kind of why not? Um, I didn't, I don't think in the end I felt it compromised anything. Um, but I, I quite accept that some people see it as a gimmick. But we've also talked to people that have seen the film and said, oh, I didn't realize it was a single shot. So there's the whole gamut of people that watch it and sometimes Sometimes it's what you bring to it beforehand, you know, that clouds your judgment of the film. I know I'm terrible like that. I, I don't like certain action films, so I hate them before I go in the door. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it is. It's just a fact of life. And maybe your friend will watch it again in 10 years' time and have a different opinion. But I quite, I quite see how it can be seen as a gimmick. I mean, in a, in a certain sense, it is a gimmick. But it, because it was following the two guys and then one guy and just following them, I think it worked better. It, it was less gimmicky than another single shot that's just doing it to be a single shot. And so, you know, swish pans up to the, the roof and then comes back down so you know where the cut is. Mm. Um, 
I think there's, you know, certain directors, there's certain techniques you, you use holding a shot that doesn't allow an audience to have any relief. I mean, that worked wonderfully in that TV, first TV series of Das Boat, not the last one, but the original German. German one, yeah. And, and Tarkovsky does it, obviously, you know, brilliantly. The, the length you hold a shot, the shot becomes something else. It it, the audience is almost trapped it within that shot, and they have to think more about their relationship to it. That's, that's my opinion. And it, when you cut, you come out wide on a cut, suddenly, oh, that's a breath of fresh air. You know, if that person is sort of struggling in a certain... Well, going down the trench, and you're, you're kind of relentlessly with this character in this one situation, you suddenly cut out wide and you see the landscape or whatever. It's like relief. You know you can get out of it, the viewer. Um, I, I, I think that's where, yeah, sure, sure, it doesn't work for everybody, but I think for some people, I think that really works. Great. just really a slow transition. As I said earlier, I never expected, I never expected to shoot dramas. I mean, I loved, when I was a kid, I loved movies, but I never imagined I'd be part of filmmaking. Um, documentaries, I saw as a possibility, but it was only because, for me, it was being at film school. I mean, I shot like 15 films at film school. I, I shot my own documentaries start, and then other students seen what I'd done in my own documentary and asked, they asked me to shoot their films and I ended up shooting a, a lot of drama. And, you know, just that, that just gave me the confidence, I think, when I went out looking for work. But, I mean, I did do, you know, I did music videos and documentaries for mainly for f probably six or seven years before I then, I got a TV series I shot and then on the basis of that, uh, a fellow student at the film school that I actually didn't know while we were at film school, but he had seen that TV series and we had worked on documentaries together. Um, then he asked me to do his first feature film and then that was successful. So then he asked me to do 1984, which was his second feature film. And then suddenly, um, I've told this story a lot, suddenly I'm sitting one day in a parking lot overlooking Salisbury Plain where we're shooting part of 1984 and I'm sitting with um, John Hurt and Richard Burton and I suddenly realised, my God, I found where I want to be, you know? It only took John Hurt and Richard Burton to make you realise <laughs> that. Yeah. Right, you had a question? Yeah, um, we're sort of at this inflection point in cinema, uh, both technology and say taste in terms of market reverse are changing, we have AI as a possibility and all these things. Where do you think the future of cinema is? Are you hopeful or <laughs> are you worried? Um, because there's this world of stories that we care deeply 
around, and I'm slightly concerned. And for somebody who's immersed in that, you know, what if, is there anything you're hopeful about? <laughs> Yeah, I, I think maybe maybe the techniques will change, but I think the storytelling is still the same. I think people still want to tell stories, well, um, whether they use AI or whatever. I think in the end, there's going to be a human being behind that that story and that telling of it. It might, then might not be a cinematographer in the way we recognise a cinematographer, but, but that's at, fine. At the same time, though, when in doing the podcast, we talk to. Directors like Sarah Polly and uh, Ryan Coogler and people that want to tell a story. And that, I mean, it seems kind of dark some days. But then when you talk to people like that, you realize, yeah, these are people that want to make the kind of movies that we want to work on. So there are people out there that have enough standing that, so there'll be some of these movies out there. I don't know how many, but... Well, well, yeah, but isn't it phases That's a whole other well? question. <laughs> I mean, isn't it sort of phases? I mean, the old, the, the classic Hollywood, um, you know, musicals of the 30s and 40s, and then, you know, suddenly, not suddenly, but then later, you know, film noir, and then you've got the wonderful films of the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and that's tailed off, and we've got, yeah, Marvel movies and superhero movies, but they're not really solving anything, so maybe we'll go back to a bit more thoughtful, uh, you know, thinking on films and storytelling. I, I don't know, you know, the world changes, doesn't it? There has been a rise, apparently, in uh, documentaries, because the streaming um, platforms are asking for it, but it's interesting because when a studio asks for a documentary, they want a cutoff date, which doesn't really work with documentaries because sometimes you're finding the story and you don't know, so you don't know when you're going to be finished. And then they want it in episodes, and then that sort of goes against the concept of a documentary. But I think it's hopeful in that people want to see documentaries, so that's, that's a good thing. Well, so I'm I trying think to be some hopeful. of the streaming series, I think you know maybe it's a different way of 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 uh, being entertained and being stimulated, you know, the, the, some of the series on on uh, streaming services are, are quite good, aren't they? And and they can actually delve into characters in a more deep way than you can in a ninety-minute or nowadays it's three and a half-hour movie that you usually go and see. But um, but even then, you can you can you can go further with a a, a series. I'm not saying that there's that many that are great, but there are some, and, and maybe that will develop. But I think just people are gonna, you know, they're gonna watch movies in different ways, and they're gonna get their entertainment and the stimulation in different ways. So, yeah, we can be nostalgic for, you know, Doctor Strange Love and films like that. I certainly am, but I mean, you know, times change. But I think also one of the problems is nowadays that I was reading some reviews, and there are actually some interesting little movies out there, but I don't know how to find them. And I can't seem to find anything on Netflix. Uh, it's just I don't understand their organization. And um, so that's the worst, is there could be interesting little movies there that people might see and go, oh, yeah, little movies aren't so bad, but they're not going to find them. Well, we're going to do one more question from the audience, and then that made me think of a, another question. Thinking you couldn't, you can't find things. And Roger was talking about great films that he or TV series that he likes. Makes me think of the old blockbuster. You would go in and be like, 
James's picks of the week and Roger's picks <laughs> of the week. What would be your picks of the week for uh, a series that you mentioned or maybe a little film that you've, you've seen? Not to put you on the spot, but you said there are some great series out there right now, so just curious. I was trying to be positive. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love, although there's a couple of Finnish series. There's one called Borderland that I think is yeah. pretty wonderful. We watch a lot of Nordic noir. Yeah, Nordic Because noir. they really do shoot them well. It's kind of interesting. Nordic and noir, okay. Yeah, yeah. Good oh. to know. All right, one more from the audience. Borders oh, I don't know. I almost feel like, who, who, who hasn't asked anything? You, oh. Too many questions still, too many hands. We're gonna go right here, okay, go ahead. Um, what's the process, how is it different when you're lighting and blocking for an IMAX film as opposed to shooting 35 or with an XLLT? And how heavy is that thing on your shoulder? I don't know, I've never used one. No, when it's been IMAX, it's been a you know, it's been, they've opened up the conversion, frame uh, yeah. conversion. Yeah, we, we had to do a, a, a new transfer, uh, you know, DCP for the IMAX version, but uh, we, I've never shot with an IMAX camera. Should I ask Hoyt, because he runs around <laughs> it with it with it on his shoulder, and I go, really? He's a big guy, <laughs> but even so. All right, well, that's all we have time for today, so big round of applause for James <laughs> Roger Deacons. <laughs> And that wraps up another episode of the Dallas Film Commission podcast. We hope you enjoyed this behind-the-scenes journey. We'd like to express our gratitude to our incredible guests who shared their valuable insights and stories with us and all of you. Whether you're a budding filmmaker, an old pro, or a movie enthusiast, Dallas is a place where we make things happen. Be sure to visit the Dallas Film Commission's website for more information, resources, and opportunities to get involved in this thriving industry. Thank you for joining us. Stay tuned for more episodes filled with great guests, inspiring stories, and industry secrets. And cut. Cut.